Welcome back to another episode of the Lawyers in the Making podcast. I'm your host, as always, Nate Crespo, and today we have another outstanding guest. And it's episode 25. We'd have 25 episodes of the Lawyers in the Making podcast. And my guest here, special guest number 25. I can't believe it's been 25 episodes. I just want to thank everyone, whoever's out there listening, for being on this journey with me and, you know, being on this journey with all the guests. It has been an amazing experience. I've learned tremendously. And, you know, there's there's no stopping from here. So if you're listening, expect more episodes. A lot coming out this week. But he is a West Virginia University College of Law graduate and currently works as the founder and CEO of Rhetoric. Super excited to have him on the podcast today. Mr. Luke Yingling, welcome to the podcast. How are we doing? I hope I said your last name right. You said it perfectly. It's yingling like the beer, except it's spelled differently. And I don't get any beer royalties, unfortunately. So had to found rhetoric instead, which I'm more than happy to be here talking about today. And congratulations to you as well on 25 episodes. Well, thank you very much. And I'm very happy to have you here for special number 25. Now, Luke, before you get started, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So like you said, Luke Yingling, founder and CEO of Rhetoric. And Rhetoric is a company that's devoted to helping litigators write more tailored, persuasive uh, motions, briefs, oral argument outlines for the particular judges that they're dealing with in their cases. And that's what we do. And so we were named to the National Law Journal's Legal Tech Trailblazers list in 2023, have some other accolades. Um, but that's kind of the, the short version of the company and what we do and a little bit about my background. So let's go back all the way back to the wonderful year of of 2017 usually i have people who are a little bit older and i say what age i was at that time and you know i make them feel old unintentionally i think it's intentionally at this point but i wasn't that old in 2017 i think i was a freshman in high school so you know little nate was just getting started uh but you were at the university of charleston and then two years later you ended up going to West Virginia University College of Law. You did get your master's degree at Penn State Harrisburg in public administration. Now, the real question we'd like to ask here, straightforward and simple, why'd you go to law school? Why'd you do it? Well, let me take a step back. You mentioned the University of Charleston. This is episode number 25. I was number 25 on the baseball team at the University of Charleston playing baseball. <laughs> That's where I developed an interest in stats for the first time. So what I tell people is, I led the team in GPA per innings pitched, which is not a real stat. It's something I made up to make myself feel better about not playing a whole lot. But uh, that was a wonderful experience. Learned something about stats. And one of the great things about sports statistics is that sports stats tend to imply a responsive action. So if you're looking at stats like war, which is wins above replacement player. A uh, stat like war implies a responsive action. If you have a player with a negative war, the thing to do is replace them with somebody who's at least average, and that will improve your team overall and the number of wins you'll collect over the course of the season. So that was something I liked about sports stats, and that's part of what led me down the path to a master's degree where I studied quantitative research methods, had some awesome advisors, and um, spent time working for the university there as a research assistant, which means uh, it's, it's like a fancier title for people who just kind of do whatever their professor or their mentor tells them to do. So I got a lot of research experience that way before heading to law school. Went to law school thinking, I don't know that I really want to practice law 
but I'm very interested in the law and I'm interested in applying my interest in quantitative research methods to legal topics. And that's kind of what brought us up to the point where we founded the company, which was in the middle of law school for me. Um, so that's a whole nother experience I'm happy to share about, but that's kind of what took me to law school and a little bit about what brought us to this point. Interesting enough, I actually do know the war statistic, my my roommate, roommate Max, shout out roommate Max, he's sleeping. Um, but uh, he he is big into the baseball statistics, always talking about the, the different sort of quantitative methods within that. And I know the I know the war stat very well because he talks about it all the time. Uh, so shout out to him. Um, I have to ask, what position did you play in baseball? I was a pitcher. And like I said, not not a whole lot of innings pitched for me, but I was, you know, I was helping the team out in the GPA department pretty well. Well, hey, listen, you know, it's a team sport. Everyone needs to contribute in one way, shape or form. I know that very well. I played basketball my whole life, started transitioning to soccer, which I always end up talking about on the podcast. But, you know, everyone, everyone ha- serves a purpose. And, and uh, clearly you did with, with helping out the GPA because you got to keep it up, make sure, you know, the team doesn't fall behind. Uh, so we go to we go to West Virginia. It's 2019. Y- your first year there. Now let's talk about the first year. Everyone says it's traumatic. Some people say, well, not everybody. Some people say it's traumatic. Some people say it was very intense. Some people absolutely love it. I've had people on this podcast say that, uh, you know, best, best year of their life. What was it for you? Uh, so I took a I took a unique route in law school. So I had a my wife and I had a four month old daughter when law school started. So we were already pretty sleep deprived. Then there was all the the rigor of class and everything like that, which I, I enjoyed. I thought, you know, I really dove into the studies, got a lot out of it, spent a, an enormous amount of time reading, of course, read my daughter some bedtime stories out of uh, textbooks, probably. But um, I was also going through. Uh, Going back to my background as a master's student, I also went through peer review on my first peer reviewed article that I published with my master's advisor. So I went through peer review at the same time as all that other stuff, first semester of law school. And that was a lot. That was a lot to do for sure. Um, But it's an experience that I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't go back on that for anything. I think learned, learned more, grew more as a person in that time than any other period in my life. So definitely invaluable. Um, but for a lot of people, it is a difficult time. It's turbulent and it's a real test of how much do you want to become a lawyer? Yeah. I, I mean, I heard you say unique route and that's a wonderful thing to say because that's, that's all I talk about here on this podcast, the unique journeys of law students and lawyers going, going through it, figuring out what they want to do, but figuring out why they want to go to law school and then actually going to law school. So I always appreciate that. I have to say the audience can't see it, but you got you got the tech startup sort of look. You got the vest. You got the slick back hair. You look a little bit like David Sachs, I have to say. Um, so it, it's it's try. I hope it doesn't. I hope it doesn't come off as like not a compliment because it totally is a compliment. You got the whole look down, and I love it so much. Um, but sort of at at West Virginia and eventually founding Rhetoric. How did you sort of figure out like this is what I want to do with the law because you know, I guess, do you have any aspirations of ever taking the bar or anything like that? Well, first off, I will take any compliments I can get. So thank <laughs> you. Um, for me, no, I didn't. I, you know, going into law school, I thought maybe I would want to practice law a little bit, uh, but not for very long. If I did, mostly what I was interested in is kind of what I described before, really wanted to apply the interest in research to legal topics. Um, so 
about halfway through law school, maybe a 2L year is when it was, um, sort of conceived the idea for rhetoric at, in a law school classroom. And since then, it's taken us from classroom to courtrooms across the country. We now have users from Washington, D.C. to Washington State and places in between. People are using us on high stakes litigation at the federal appellate level. We'll be used at the United States Supreme Court soon. So it's been an incredible journey in less than three years from that time, you know, when, when I was a 2L student in law school. Um, but that was kind of the vision from that time on is uh, this is the way to apply those interests and do something really unique, really valuable to users, really helpful to attorneys. And one of the most rewarding things for me is that it really captures people's intellectual curiosity, the way we're able to gauge judges' preferences and language. So I have to ask, because I myself, I'm, a, I'm not an entrepreneur because I don't have I don't have a business or anything. I just have this silly little podcast. Um, but how did you how did you conceive this idea? You know, how, what was the process of thinking about it and then coming to the conclusion that, you know, how did the vision come into your head, really? Yeah. So my background was in research methods. Like I said, I had studied a lot about text analysis and understanding how um, laws diffuse between states. So you're, you're going to study the text of adopted laws in one state, see how they diffuse to other states, which states are more influential in, in sort of driving that process of diffusion. And so that was my background. So I thought initially we would use the, the research uh, instrument called R to write our software. We ended up not doing that. We use Python, which is much more traditional. But that was kind of the foundational idea as well. I have this background in, in understanding text. We're going to apply that to opinions written by judges and see if they have preferences that come come through in what they've written. So in law school, you spend time in class called uh, legislation and regulation, learning about interpretation of various things and how judges interpret things. So it was in that class that I think we st I first kind of started to wrap my, my head around, you know, there are real distinctions between judges and how they prefer to articulate things, how they prefer to have things articulated to them. And that was sort of the kernel of an idea that eventually developed into rhetoric. And now we look at far more than just interpretive methods. So we look at things that include jurisprudence. So what is the judge's philosophy of the law? We also look at things like sentiment and tone to understand, do they have emotional leanings on certain topics? Um, do they have preferences for you know how formal or informal your brief may be written? And we take that information about the judge and match it up with what you've written for the case and give you structured feedback about how to improve what you've written. And that's the, the basic overview of rhetoric. So I think it's an amazing idea and you will one day make millions of dollars. And I just, you know, I put that out there. I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not like an official, like, Oh, I love the affirmations, but I think it's important to put things at, out into the universe. And they usually come true because, you know, you, you keep pushing it forward. You keep it conscious in your mind you keep it conscious in the universe. And then, Oh, wow, I'm getting real spiritual here. Uh, but it, I think it's true. And I felt I, 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 you probably don't think about it in the way that I do, but it, it clearly throughout your journey here and, and what rhetoric is at right now, it's clearly coming true. But from that, I have to ask, sort of juggling between going to law school, obviously you, you have, is it a daughter, son? I miss that. <laughs> I had, well, at the beginning of law school, I had a daughter, and then halfway through, we decided to grow the family, and we had a son as well, so <laughs> we kept busy. So how did you sort of juggle all of that? What, what were the sorts of things that you you know deployed into your own life in order to make sure that everything was in tip-top shape? 
Well, I wish I had some some piece of uh, incredible advice about that. But my the real advice I have is, you know, eat a lot of uh, chocolate covered espresso beans. That was one of my big things <laughs> late at night. Chocolate covered espresso beans, a lot of coffee, a lot of espresso, a lot of uh, Red Bull and power through it. I mean, it's not easy um, if you've if you're really determined about it and you really are willing to stay up late and spend a couple years, which sounds like a lot of time, but once you're in the thick of it, it goes fast. If you're willing to spend a couple of years with your head down, really work hard, you can get through it and do a lot of incredible things while you're in school. So it's it's possible, but it's it's tricky. Yeah, I, uh, I'm a, I'm not not exactly. I love caffeine, I have to say. I started, <laughs> I've I got my Celsius right here, but I've been, you know, started using it the past couple of year, uh, past couple months because of this podcast and school and everything and sort of, and obviously I love going to the gym. I always talk about it. Uh, so, you know, I got my pre-workout too. So I'm always, you know, caffeined up and it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It gets you through a lot of things from what I've, what I've seen, but I have to ask from that sort of, you know, can, can you talk about obviously you said it takes a couple of years and that sounds like a long time to you know on the outside to people who haven't you know experienced sort of building something like this building a software tech company but can you talk about the importance of sort of compounding what you do in your life because clearly that's what you're doing yeah absolutely so i mean the little habits every day stack up a lot over the course of time. And you're thinking about those couple years when you're in law school. I mean, there's a good book called The Defining Decade that talks about how, you know, important your 20s are to setting the trajectory for the rest of your life. Um, but that period right there, that those three years you're in law school or, or whatever other educational journey you may choose, um, the condensed kind of incredible bit of learning you can do in that time frame and the habits that you form there will have a spillover effect on the rest of your life. That's huge. And for me, having kids while I was in the middle of law school was an, a, a really fortunate thing, a wonderful thing for a lot of reasons. One reason is that kids put everything in perspective. If you, um, you know, if you don't feel so great about how you did on a test, if you don't feel so great about how you performed on something in school, um, pretty quickly you get hit with the realization that that doesn't matter so much compared to, you know, what I see in the eyes of my kids. So that was another really fortunate thing that, you know, a lot of people say having kids in law school is incredibly hard. It does make it more complicated, but it does give you a lot of perspective. That's really helpful. Um, so that would be my answer. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. And something that I've certainly experienced in my life, uh, I've I've had a couple bad grades before, and after a while, you just realize in the grand scheme of things, it's just some number on a paper that will eventually turn into a letter, and it is what it is at the end of the day, and it brings me back to one of my favorite people that I've stumbled upon in the past couple of months, Tim Ferriss. Uh, he has his own podcast. I'm actually reading his book, The 4-Hour Workweek, right now, but he sort of talks about one of the most important things that you could ever do in your life is not giving an F. I usually don't curse on this podcast, but not giving a fuck. So sorry, everyone. Um, and it, it it truly is a superpower that you can have in your life. And clearly you've employed it in your life. But it's certainly something that I've learned uh, not to care so much about things like that. Because in the grand scheme of things, it, it really doesn't matter. I heard you say The Defining Decade. What, who, who authored that book? 
Oh, it escapes me now. My age, my age is showing, like you said. <laughs> now, I, don't, I can't remember the author, but I definitely recommend the book. It was recommended to me originally by one of our investors, um, but definitely worth reading for anybody who's listening to the show. So you stumble upon a book. I love books. We're getting into it now, Luke. What is Luke Yingling's book recommendations? What are some of your favorites? Uh, it doesn't have to be about the law. It could be literally about anything. You could throw the defining decade. So you got one on there. What are a couple others? Yeah. So there's a great book called Grit uh, by Angela Duckworth, I believe. Um, not Nothing to do with the law at all, but it has a lot to do with how people who persevere and develop a lot of grit uh, through their lives tend to perform better at just about any profession, any task. People who can endure through things, hardships, hurdles, difficulties over the long run tend to be more successful people than people who happen to have a really incredible intellect. Having both is great, but having grit is really one of the defining features of really successful people. And that's what the book is about. Um, so it's a great encouragement to people who are facing difficulty now about the importance of enduring through that and, and succeeding in the end. But that's a book I definitely recommend. Um, a great one to read. Nothing to do with the law. So if you're listening to this in law school, that would be a great break from legal reading, probably. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I always write down all the book recommendations and buy them on Amazon and then read them and see and see how they go. Uh, I've gotten so many recommend book recommendations on this podcast. You wouldn't even believe it. Uh, but I get all of them and I and I read all of them. And I love reading. It's one of my favorite things in the world. Uh, I love knowledge as well. I think it's a very important thing. But I heard you say something before. You're talking about value. Obviously, it's very important to you right now because you founded this company. Can you talk about the importance of giving value to people as well as giving value to yourself and sort of how to how to how to make yourself become a much more valuable person as well as making whatever product you're making be as valuable to the consumers who are consuming the product. Yeah. So I, one of the things I think about is, you know, I don't want to run through life keeping a tally of what things that I do for others and what did they do for me in return? You know, that's a, that's a way to live life that would grind you down over the years, I think. Um, so I try to be giving and just generous. And if people are in kind, then wonderful. Usually people are. Um, but that's my view on value to others in a, in a nutshell. In terms of providing value in products, you asked about book recommendations. The Lean Startup is an amazing book uh, all about how to provide value to users by listening to what they say about what they want instead of you know, coming in with a huge set of your own assumptions about what they want and what they need. And so from the product perspective, rather than just the personal perspective, that's kind of the way we, we decide about how do we provide value to users. Um, and the legal space is an interesting one because... Uh, it's a lot, you know, getting a product in front of legal users so that they can kind of figure out how does this product help me? How does it not? How do we develop this? Um, lawyers' time is precious. And so it, it startups in the legal space look a little different than startups in other spaces, partly for that reason. And that's something we learned a lot about as we tried to figure out how do we provide value to lawyers who are working on on litigation that's, you know, usually very high stakes. Yeah, I've heard of the Lean Startup as well. I've I've heard of that book. I've seen it before. Uh, and you're sort of obviously having to sell this product, having to go in front of lawyers and present it and be able to, you know, pitch it. Uh, can you talk about how selling and selling yourself 
can you just describe that sort of experience and describe how you, know, you sort of maybe got better at it or what are sort of tips and tricks that you have in order to sell something as well as yourself? Yeah, well, it's all about credibility. Um, for me, I never, I you know, I have a lot of friends who are attorneys, for example. Never once do I ask any of them for connections or ask them if they want to use the product. My goal is to go out and show people through what I say that the product's really interesting, that we're credible people, that what we do is research driven, and it's a really interesting product. And that should sell the product itself. That alone should be enough. If we need to do anything beyond that, we're doing something wrong on the product side. And that's not the position we want to be in. So for us, it's just about telling the story, telling where we came from, sharing about the product, how people have used it and got value from it. And that's really that's really the whole key to selling for me is is just sharing. It's not about, you know, taking people by the arm and twisting their arm. If we have to do that, we've gone wrong somewhere. So that's that's selling for me. Now, you're also the director of analytics and business intelligence at Village Village Caregiving. Can you sort of describe what that experience is and tell us a little bit about what you do there? Yes, absolutely. So as a job, I began when I was still in law school around the time of founding Rhetoric. And I've kept the job partly because I enjoy it so much, but it's a it's a job where we help kind of understand the analytics of this company, Village Caregiving, which now has offices across the nation and they do home health. And so one of the great things about it for me is sometimes CEOs recommend that other CEOs sit on boards of different companies so they can have a window into, you know, what do people do in different industries? Well, for me, this is that. I have a a window into a different industry to learn about how things function there and can carry learnings across to rhetoric and back and forth. And so it's a company that's founded by folks that are not too far from where I live in West Virginia, where I grew up. So it's important to me for that reason. But I'm also very connected with the folks there. And so we spend a lot of time understanding through reports, looking at data, how's the company performing as a whole, because they're running a really large organization. And for them, they need to have kind of eyes across the organization to run things smoothly, efficiently, effectively. And that's part of my job there is to help provide those eyes. Yeah, so I want to talk about sort of the business perspective of this tech startup. Uh, you know, can you describe the sort of experience that you've had, especially working at Village Caregiving, being able to see this sort of holistic view of all different companies uh, and how it sort of applies to your own company rhetoric? Uh, you, you know, what, what, the business side of it, how have you sort of, you know, crunched the numbers, been able to see the margins, be able to actually make money off of this? Yeah. So I was fortunate enough to to join uh, Village Caregiving, like I said, as a law student and watch them scale. So I got to see a company scale really tremendously at the beginning of our company journey to see how, you know, how does that look? What's the experience like for the people inside? Who do they add? What are the strategic kind of additions you need to make in terms of members of the team? Um, so being able to observe that from the inside in a company and then apply that learning to our to rhetoric has been fantastic. Um, it's the kind of ir- irreplaceable experience that, you know, I just couldn't ask for something better to have been part of or, and to have observed. Um, so that's my take on that. And in terms of kind of understanding business, you know, we kind of just jumped in head first. I didn't have an extensive background in business. But it was clear that we needed to raise capital to fund rhetoric uh, from the get-go. So we were fortunate enough that the first person that I went and said, hey, I have an idea, that person said, I'll pull out the checkbook right now. And that was our first 
faster. So that was a great indication that we were onto something. So learned a lot. It's kind of like drinking from a fire hose in terms of just the, the amount of stuff you need to take in and process. Um, but again, it's, it's one of those experiences that I wouldn't replace for anything. I mean, I, I don't have a lot of money, but I'll pull out my checkbook right now, Luke, and I'll write you a nice big old check. I don't have a lot of money, so I can't really do that. But if I down the line, if I if I come to, you know, I I like I said, I always put things out in the universe. I know I'll have a lot of money one day and Luke, I will give you a lot of my money. Uh, but from that, uh, you know, these investors clearly helped you uh, your time at Penn State. Uh, being, getting your master's in public administration, you had a lot of mentors there. Can you talk about the importance of mentorship and sort of networking, how that has, uh, you know, impacted your life as well as your company? Yeah, a good a good mentor will save you years of mistakes. That's for sure. Um, one of our mentors uh, who does coaching with us uh, has a quote that I come back to a lot, which is, uh, sometimes you learn more from your scar tissue than from your brain tissue. And learning from somebody else's scar tissue is a lot better than, you know, developing that scar tissue yourself through a lot of costly mistakes. So we've learned an enormous amount. Um, experienced mentors who can guide you, give you insight, just give you somebody who's who's been there and done that. Um, it's invaluable. It's another one of those things that we're incredibly fortunate to have. One of the things that I've said a lot of times is, you know, the true value of a startup lies on the quality of its people. And that extends to mentors who are guiding you through this journey. Um, so even more than, you know, the capital we've raised, I'm much more proud of the people who are part of this and who's chosen, you know, people who've decided their own free will, they want to be part of this journey. It's an amazing thing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more about that. I've I've definitely heard that sentiment before of, you know, this this the most important part of the startup are the people within it. Uh I've definitely uh I've heard that especially a podcast that I really like to listen to is called Founders. Uh it's by David Sonera and he goes through, you know, he reads biographies and then he sorts of he he does a whole podcast about it, goes through the people's lives, the important points that they make. And one of my favorite episodes that I've stumbled upon is the one about PayPal. Uh, you know, they had a star-studded roster of people, you know, people who are billionaires at this point, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, Reid Hoffman, David Sachs, and they talked about so much about the importance of having Peter Thiel as, as the CEO and that eventually became Elon, but those are two people who are obviously pioneers of, of just the world at this point, and the importance of having someone who was capable as well as the rest of the team all being on the same page working efficiently was you know the reason why paypal sold for you know i think it was like 600 500 million dollars to ebay eventually but something like that is so important and i think it applies to your own life as well making sure you have the correct people around you at all times people with positive mindsets people with growth mindsets and i have to ask now because i talked about the growth mindset extensively with ryan mccarl on episode 23 can you Talk about how important a growth mindset has been for you in your own life. Yeah, well, it kind of goes back to that book I mentioned earlier, Lean Startup. It, the idea is build, measure, learn, build, measure, learn all the time. Um, you do that in a business context, but you also do that somewhat in a personal context in terms of the information you pull in, learning about the environment you're in, taking learnings from the experiences you've had. Um and trying again. I mean, that process is one that never stops. If you read a book like Principles by Ray Dalio, another great book, 
uh, they de- he, de- he describes a similar process, you know, and he has a great little illustration of it on the cover of the book. But basically, your life goes in an upward pattern like this if you're managing to learn from from failures and failures aren't truly failures as long as you're failing forwards. Um, that is, to me, the growth mindset. It's it's not about reading a certain number of books every week or anything like that, even though that's, you know, it's good to have those goals. Um, it's really about taking in those learnings, digesting them and making use of it going forward. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I know Ray Diallo. Uh, I, I've never read any of his books, but I've seen, seen a couple of blog posts, a couple of sub stacks. I've, I've read through them and I think he's absolutely excellent in terms of he's, you know, having that same sort of sentiment of it's important to keep growing. It's important not to fail. Um, and I think going forward from that, I, I have to ask, you know, the old, the the old. Not saying that there's a lot of old people in the legal industry, but usually the the partners at the top are a bit older. Uh, how how is sort of convincing these people that using a tech software product like yours, which seems seemingly is very cutting edge? Uh, I don't know if you guys do. You guys use any AI? Yeah, we do. So we use it in a couple of different ways. We try to create an experience that's very what we we call on rails with AI, so that the users can verify that the information we're giving them is correct. They can see the case that quotations came from, for example. Um, And then they have controls about how aggressive do they want to be with how they use AI to rewrite portions of their brief. So one of the things we allow users to do, just to give you an example, is we'll pinpoint places in their brief or their motion, whatever it is, where they're using arguments that are not going to be persuasive to this judge. It may actually be a turnoff. They can take that language and rewrite it right within the platform to make it more in the voice of the judge or judges that they're dealing with. And they have controls there. So they can say, I want to do a slight rewrite. I want to do a moderate rewrite. And they can choose, you know, I want this to be in a more positive uh, voice. I want this to be written more formally or informally to appeal to this particular judge. And so they have controls there and they can choose how they use that information. That way they feel like they're in control of the experience and they are. So that's part of the way we've done it. You know, going back to some good books, there's a book called Crossing the Chasm about sort of delivering products to people and how, you you know, users of products kind of, you can imagine them as being on a bell curve. There's kind of a a chasm somewhere in the curve. uh, And you got to cross that chasm if you're somebody producing these technologies. One of the interesting things with AI and people's interest in it and, and realization that they need to adopt in a timely fashion is that it's kind of created this first follower phenomenon where instead of saying, I'm going to wait until other people adopt they're, they're, what they're really saying is I want to see somebody else that I know use this kind of products first, and then I'm going to be ready to follow suit because people, they feel the need um, to use these products. It's just evident that they're transformational things. So that's part of my observation. And Luke, let me know when the IPO is and I am I am ready. My money is ready to go. Oh my goodness. I am very excited to to see where where rhetoric goes from here and I have to ask what does the future of rhetoric look like and you know what what are your expectations? What are your goals within your company? Um you know maybe 5 years, 10 years down the line. Yeah, so we're still a young company, of course. We're only we're less than, we're less than 3 years old. Um, and we've really only had the product out in the market for a relatively short time because we spent a lot of time perfecting it before we sent it out or, or you know, perfecting it as much as you can. Um, so we, we're really diligent about testing it with lawyers before sending it out into the wild. 
Um, one, for, you know, what will be a fulfillment of an amazing goal here in the near future is that the product will be used at the U.S. Supreme Court. Some of our clients have told us they're going to use it there. That'll be an amazing success right there. Um, beyond that, we want to scale and have people using this at law firms of all size. One of the things I'm proud of is we have solo practitioners using it. We have big firms using it. Um, that to me is a success story in itself because we know that the product is providing value to people across the spectrum. Um, that's a really cool thing to me. That's very rewarding. We want to continue to grow within the legal space. We have ideas for new products and features that users have already told us will be really valuable and really unique. And so they'll provide something new in the space. It'll make a contribution to the growth of the legal tech space, uh, which is already a booming space, of course. Um, beyond that, you know, we've had people ask us and we're not ready to commit any direction you know, yet. We've had people ask us about going into new industries and doing similar work in different spaces. And that's something we're interested in, but not ready to commit to yet. Right now, we're, we're laser focused on legal and providing values to litigators uh, to help them get some competitive advantage. Now, this is this is a B2B model, I, I would assume, correct? Right. Business to business. Very nice. See, I, I had to put that in there. I like I like that word because uh, I've heard it a lot throughout my pod, podcasts and, and all the books that I read. And sometimes I don't really know what's going on a lot of the times because I've never built a company in my life. Um, but I, I I am ecstatic for what rhetoric has in store. And I'm more than willing to give you all of my money. Even I know I keep saying that, but I think it's I think it's a fantastic idea. And it, it's 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 value to any sort of lawyer as well as obviously you said you're not committing just yet to other industries but i think it could be absolutely super duper useful to pretty much anyone uh i think the fact that it, it, it can it can change the way that you write things and it will direct you in a way that will make it more favorable to a judge because i think that's a really important obviously it's one of the most important parts of any sort of uh, litigation, making sure that you're on correct terms with the judge, because each judge has a very unique view. And you have to, the ability to curate what you're writing towards what that judge enjoys to read is just amazing, because it, it, it it's better for the judge. I know, uh, you know, two episodes ago, I was talking to Ryan McCarl, and he was talking about how some of the judges he has met had 12,000, I think it was 12,000 cases for the entire year. And there's no way they're going to read all of that. But if someone using your product puts it in there and is allowed to sort of curate it in a way where the judge will have an enjoyable read and actually want to read it and see things that they like to see, they're going to win every time. And that's a wonderful thing. This is a wonderful product. I have to say, Luke, I think it, you, you're hitting on a gold mine here that the gold rush is coming, Luke. I swear on my life. Um, I think it, it's an amazing thing. But here we go. Last three questions. First question, it's an established question. I used to call it weird. Not anymore. We're, we're done with that. Um, what are the sorts of things that you consume, not food, on a daily basis? Either that be social media, you know, uh, Instagram, X, YouTube. Uh, what are some of your favorite content creators that you, you know, follow all the time? What sort of Substacks are you reading? Anything like that? Yeah, that's a good question. So I like to look around on Reddit for all the different subreddits that deal with law, that deal with data. Um, data is beautiful is a cool one. It's a great place to get ideas. So like I said earlier, the ability to look into other industries and kind of peek in and see what people are doing and apply learnings from that space to your space uh, is a really cool thing. So that's one thing I like to do is kind of look at those subreddits. Um, 
that's fun. Uh, and it's also like a great way to wind down at the end of the day is kind of digest something from a different space. You can stop thinking so obsessively about your own company journey. Um, so that's a cool thing to do. I do that every day. And then obviously I read a lot of news articles as well, current events and things. Um, and then, you know, reading like, you know, business uh, related things from like The Economist or whoever it is um, also gives you eyes into other industries and really in-depth analysis. And that's that's good stuff to read, too. So, Luke, second to last question here. You're always working. You got your two kids. It's a wonderful thing. But what does an ideal Friday night and Sunday morning look for Luke Jingling? Oh, that's a good question. Um one of the things I love to do is get uh, Indian food takeout. I could eat, <laughs> I could eat endless quantities of pakora and samosa. Those are two of my favorite foods ever. Very, very fried foods. Um, so probably not great for you, but I love them. And I, for me, I would like to just stay in the house, watch a movie, binge a, a docu series, whatever that kind of stuff. Uh, or I do play some games occasionally, uh, but. Indian food on top of that for me, that's, that's perfect. And then uh, I try to sleep in, but I usually I'm up by, by six or seven, no matter what. Well, Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I love, I, you got the attitude, you got the tech startup, you got the look, you got the lifestyle. Luke, it's going very well. Um, And I have to ask, what sorts of games are you playing? Are these board games or these video games? Video games. I recently played, I'm playing one right now. Um, in my spare time that it's kind of like a mystery thriller game it's not like a it's kind of an rpg game but there's not a whole lot of action uh, it's mostly dialogue driven so the story around it's really interesting but i like a lot of games like that loved skyrim it's an all-time favorite of mine um playing it now with the older graphics is a little rough on the eyes <laughs> but i still love it so that's that's what i like to do to wind down yeah, I'm a I'm a bit of a video game enthusiast myself. I'm seeing all the. I mean, I don't I don't have like an official PC or anything. I should get one now. Uh, but I played I played a lot of Xbox when I was a when I was a young lad, uh, going throughout life. I love I love Call of Duty Zombies, one of my favorite things in the world. Uh, you know, Black Ops One, Black Ops Two, Black Ops Three. That was the golden. And then you know, obviously, a lot happened, and it's not as good anymore. But, you know, that's just my personal opinion. Some people like it. It's for the it's more for the casual user, not exactly the people that like me who like to get a little more in depth. I love the story. Um, I know a big one that just came out, which I haven't played yet. And I don't even know if I can. I know Helldivers 2 just came out. And that's the that's a big rave nowadays. A lot of people are playing that. I know my friends play it all the time. Uh, so, you know, I just I like asking those questions. And when you're talking about video games, I'm a big lover of them. I just I only play FIFA nowadays, though. Um, I love I love the sports games but FIFA. I'm very good at it. I have to say, you know, I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to not trying to toot my own horn here. But, you know, weekend league, I went 17 and three one time, whatever. Um, but final question here, Luke. What are your word? I do this at the end of every every episode. But what are your words of wisdom? to the aspiring law students, the current law students, and even the legal professionals can get some words of wisdom from Luke. Yes. Um, here are my words of wisdom. Uh, there are a lot of things that you can do with a law degree, and one of them is to become a lawyer. Those are my words of wisdom. Uh, it's not, you know, the path through law school will teach you a great many things. You'll develop a whole lot of skills that are valuable. And there's a lot of transferability of skills in the legal, you know, getting a law degree. So there's nothing about that path that that sets in stone that you have to become a lawyer, you have to litigate, you have to be a transactional person. None of that's set in stone. You can define your career path 
uh, based on all the wonderful things, all the traits that you'll develop in law school. Um, being a lawyer is only one thing you can do with a law degree. Well, Luke, that's the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on and giving all this wisdom and knowledge. And for people out there listening, not only will I see you in the next one, but look out for rhetoric. And if you have money, give it to Luke Yingling, because my God, this thing's about to blow up. But once again, I'll say again, thank you so much for everyone out there listening, and I will see you in the next one.